Let me add my word of thanks for your presence this evening. And I would like to just start by saying this is a series of lessons which began last evening and is composed of three lessons. And so tonight, for the sake of time, we do not have time to do what every good teacher would do, and that's to review the first lesson. We will make a couple of points about that and proceed. So if you were not able to be here last night, we're sorry about that. It is recorded. And you can go back and pick that lesson up. There's just not time to review that whole lesson. But we're glad you're here this evening. And we're going to turn our attention first, because we are doing this series in a church building at the request of a congregation of God's people, it's entirely fitting that we begin with passages of Scripture to introduce this subject. I will tell you, however, when I do this series on a college campus in a science lecture room, we don't use the Scripture at all. Instead, we appeal to God's other book, that is, the testimony of His natural world, which I am convinced is elaborate, it's adequate, it is marvelous to convict someone that there is a God, independent of this book. But let's begin this evening in Psalm chapter 8. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, you who set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And so a great proclamation of the majesty of the God we serve in the Old Testament. And the question you see before you on the screen, is belief in such a God reasonable in this scientific age? And I can tell you there are a host of folks who would tell you, no, it is not. We're past that. With the intelligence that we have gained and the knowledge that we have acquired through the centuries, the need for a God has become less and less. And some would tell you, it has even become an interference for man's progress and dangerous, this idea of a God. So is it reasonable to believe in God in the scientific age? Is the question I'm posing in this series. David the psalmist would certainly say it is from the testimony of the natural world. One other passage which we also used last evening is Romans chapter 1. I would like to refer to it again briefly this evening at the beginning of this lesson because I think of all the scriptures in the Bible, this is the clearest one in terms of declaring that there is such a thing as an argument for the existence of God from the natural world. Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, 
so that they are without excuse. And so last evening we introduced the famous argument from design, which is exactly the argument used in Romans 1.20. The invisible things of God, that is, God cannot be directly observed, but by observing things that are made, one can conclude some things about the Maker. That's the argument in Romans 1.20. And in this passage it says you can at least determine His eternal power and His divinity, that He is a being beyond this natural world. Those two things at least one should be able to determine from the natural world. In fact, this passage says anyone who misses that is without excuse. And so what about it in the 21st century? Is it reasonable to believe in God? Many would say you're going back to the medieval ages if you take that position, that there is such a thing as a God. You've given up much of what we've learned as modern men. I want to say to you this evening, I think there's less excuse than ever to missing that there is a God. And I hope you feel the same as we discuss this evening and tomorrow evening some of the evidences of the natural world. So last evening we referred to this website. It's the website for the CP Institute, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. I don't have time to teach that lesson again. But the point of their website that I pulled out that I'd like to use again this evening is in this first paragraph. And I know you can't read that, so I've blown it up for you. So you can read it. The CT organization, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, is an exploratory science. Note, please, they refer to themselves as a science. I'm not arguing with that. I think you can use the methods of science to explore this subject. It's an exploratory science that seeks evidence of life in the universe, extraterrestrial, by looking for some signature of its technology. How would you determine that there's intelligent life out there in the universe somewhere? These folks argue you can do it by the basis of looking for a signature of technology. And the signature they're looking for is narrowband radio signals that contain information. We taught that lesson last night. I'm going to play off of that this evening as we take that same method of reasoning and apply it to things right here on the earth. Why can you apply such reasoning to things out there in outer space, but you can't apply it here on earth? I think you can so we're going to look at a signature that is present right here in every living cell. And I'm going to base some of what I say upon this relatively recent text called Signature in the Cell by Stephen C. Meyer. I highly recommend it to you. It's a little thick and it's a little heavy reading, but it is rich. And if you really want to dig into this subject, that's in a relatively up-to-date text. That's one I'd recommend to you. And so I've entitled this lesson this evening, Signature in the Cell. You see, if you can look for the signature of technology out there in outer space, a signature that would indicate intelligence, I say you can look for a signature right here on Earth. 
that also points to intelligence. And while science cannot investigate God, ultimately, I'm convinced science can point us to the existence of an intelligent designer. That it can do. Just as I believe science can point us to intelligence out there in the universe by looking for certain signs of intelligent design. And I'm convinced that most of us, we've been convinced there's some kind of intelligence out there if you could find some of the stuff they're looking for. Which, by the way, nobody's found yet. But if you could, it would be strong evidence. And the fact is, ladies and gentlemen, you can find many of those things right here on earth in living things. And that's our subject for this evening. And it's very much like a court case. What we're going to do this evening is present you the evidence, the facts of nature as we've discovered them to this point in time. And lest I forget to do this later, I want to do it right now. I'd like to offer my apology to every living cell for the miserable, incomplete job that I will do tonight. When I get finished, I will have not touched the hem of the garment of what should be said. So please understand, there's much more to be said than I'm going to tell you tonight. Much more. A lot of it I don't know. A lot of it nobody knows. But based on what we do know, I'm going to give you a small glimpse of the evidence and ask you the question, which is more reasonable, natural causes or intelligent design? I don't believe there are any other answers to that question. What we're going to talk about tonight either came about by natural causes or it came about by intelligent design, which is more reasonable based on what we know about nature and about intelligence designing things. That's the question. In order to get at this this evening, I want to talk about life itself. And the beginning of this material comes from a little book called Life Itself, Its Origin and Nature by Francis Crick. Now, I didn't ask the elders this earlier, so maybe I'm putting you fellows on the spot. Is it okay tonight if I ask questions and people answer? Is that okay? Is that all right? I'm getting lots of yes nods, so. All right, so uh, what we're going to say to is we've just dismissed the assembly and we've gone to a class. We are now in a class, so you can answer questions. All right, does anybody know who Francis Crick is? This is not a good beginning. We have lots of biology to learn tonight. Yeah, thank you so much. He is the fellow that wrote this book. Dr. Francis Crick, along with Dr. James Watson, are very famous in the history of biochemistry. They are credited with the discovery of the structure of DNA. And the year they were given the Nobel Prize for that great discovery is 1953. Some of us were already born then. A lot of you youngsters weren't even born then. May I tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that you are very blessed to have been born and to live in the last 50 years. We have uncovered more about the secret of how life functions in the last 50 years than all the time before 
by far. And you're living at this time. That's part of the reason I say to you there's less excuse than ever for us to miss that there's a God. Let's talk about how life is constructed. All life as we know it on earth. And by the way, I will say that a lot of times tonight. Life as we know it on earth. Did you know it's the only kind of life anybody knows anything about? So you say life as we know it. There ain't any other kind. If there is, nobody knows what it is. I've read books that conjecture on life made out of silicon instead of carbon and oxygen and hydrogen and water. But nobody has any clue that any such thing exists. So let's just say it this way. Life, as anybody knows about it, looks like this. It's made up of structural materials, which are proteins. And they, of course, make the shape and the mobility of various types of living things. So that's one basic type of material that is in every living thing. A second is the tools and machinery that make it work. Those are called enzymes. And I'll just tell you, enzymes are special forms of proteins. So the first two substances up here are both proteins. And we're going to talk about that a little bit. And these are the ones that provide the metabolism for growth and maintenance for living things. Enzymes. Extremely important for every living thing. The other major types of material that are present in all living things are called the blueprints. They consist of the nucleic acids, the DNA and the RNA, that everybody in this audience has heard of. You may not have studied it, but you've certainly heard of it. And they provide the possibility for reproduction. Ladies and gentlemen, one of the keys to living things is that they're able to reproduce themselves. It is the DNA and the RNA that allow that to happen. Again, may I offer my second apology? That is such a simplistic statement to explain what's really going on. It's much more complicated than that. But there are two basic types of families of molecules, proteins and nucleic acids. The problem for someone trying to explain how life arose without God is explaining how both of those families work together the way they do. Now let me see what my next slide is. I think before I introduce that one, I'll read a little quote here from Crick's book. In his book, he says this, Life as we know it on earth appears to be a synthesis, a combination of two large molecular systems. The proteins, because of their versatility and chemical reactivity, do all the work, but are unable to replicate themselves in any simple way. So let me repeat that in modern language. Proteins do all the work, but they can't reproduce themselves. The nucleic acids seem tailor-made for replication, but can achieve rather little else compared with the more elaborate and better equipped proteins. The nucleic acids can reproduce really well, but they don't do much else. You see? And then here's the statement that he makes that I was going to show you on the screen here. RNA and DNA 
are the dumb blondes of the biomolecular world. I want to be sure you knew I didn't say that. That's in this book. They are fit mainly for reproduction with a little help from the proteins and are of little use for much really demanding work. <clears throat> so excuse me, ladies. That's what he said. And you know why I like to use that is not to belittle uh, blondes, though that's kind of fun too. It is not for that purpose. It is because now you'll never forget that. I don't think. What do the DNA and the RNA do? They reproduce. And that's their primary function and not much else. So here's what he says then. The problem of the origin of life would be a great deal easier to approach if there were only one family of large molecules able, of doing, able to do both kinds of work. But life as we know it always has two. And they work together in such marvelous harmony. It's incredible, ladies and gentlemen. So how did all that get started? Without a designer, that's the question. All right. Now, I will say this to you at this juncture. We're going to do some chemistry tonight, folks. And you'll notice I'm not going to pay much attention to this book anymore this evening. In fact, I'm going to lay it aside over here, not because I don't respect and deeply revere that book and believe it's God's Word. No, it's because I have another purpose tonight. Folks who don't even believe in God don't need you quoting the Bible to them. They need you to convince them that there's a God by other lines of evidence. And I'm convinced the evidence our God has left for us in the natural world is so overwhelming, it should convince anybody. It's just a matter of whether we do it well enough. So my hope this evening, as we talk some chemistry together, and if you don't know it, I've taught chemistry for many, many years, and it's my favorite subject by far. Because life is chemistry. And chemistry is life. If you were in my class, you'd hear that every day. And you'd understand that everything we're studying in chemistry is studying, in essence, how life works. And it's fascinating. And anybody that tells me chemistry is boring hadn't had me for a teacher. It's not boring. It's fascinating. So I'm going to take you on a journey with me this evening, and I hope you stay with me. And as I told you last night, if you start looking sleepy, you're going to stand up. I need your attention, and I need your mind engaged. Let's talk about proteins a little bit first. I'm going to have to leave proteins pretty much to the side tonight, although they deserve about six weeks. I want to tell you the basic things about proteins you need to know to make my points tonight. They're structural proteins and they're enzymes, as I've already told you. Both are proteins. And they're the workhorses. They get the jobs done in your body. If you didn't have them, folks, you'd be dead. And this is what they're made of, as anybody can see. These are the 20 common amino acids. Now, do you have some health people in this audience? You folks investigate staying healthy. Don't they tell you 
that you should have your complete set of amino acids. Be sure you get all your amino acids. The reason for that, folks, is without the amino acids, you don't build proteins. And if you don't have proteins, you're dead. These substances are extremely important, and you may not be aware that every protein in every living thing is made up of those 20, with a few little exceptions. About 99.5%. I want to say that again. Every protein in every living thing is made up of those 20, with a few little tiny exceptions. So let's look at them briefly. I want you to remember these now. We'll have a quiz at the end. Part of the reason you have papers, I'm going to ask you to give me these. I'm kidding. But let's at least look at a few. And I'm doing this to show you what you would do if you were in my chemistry class. Glycine. You see that NH3 group? That's an ammonia group. It's connected to this carbon with one hydrogen and another hydrogen, a COO group. That's a carboxyl group. Every amino acid has an amine and a carboxyl. Got it? Forget it. You don't have to have that. But if you look at all of them, you'll see an NH3 and a COO in every one of them. Somewhere. Just have different structures. Okay, so we have glycine and alanine and valine and leucine and isoleucine and proline and serine and threonine and so forth all the way down to histidine. There's 20 of them. Every protein is a combination of these 20. So they act just exactly like the 26 letters in the alphabet does for words. Wouldn't you agree that in English every word is made up of one of these or a combination of 26 letters? That's exactly the way a protein is. It's a combination of the 20 amino acids in a row. You make words out of it. Huge words! Here's another interesting thing about amino acids. All but one of them can be right-handed or left-handed. Those are called optical isomers. Again, you don't have to remember all this. It's an interesting fact, though, that every one of them can have a right-handed one and a left-handed one. Do you see over here I've got four fingers on both hands and I have thumbs? But have you ever tried to put a right-handed glove on your left hand, it doesn't work. Because it doesn't matter if you have exactly the same elements. They're oriented differently, and therefore they have slightly different properties. So do these proteins. This one is L-alanine, that's left-handed alanine, and D-alanine, that's right-handed alanine. They say, why isn't that R-alanine? Because it comes from the word dextro, which means right. So left and right-handed amino acids. Now, here's a fascinating fact. Fact. In every living protein, without exception, the amino acids found in living proteins are always left-handed. I'm pausing for that to sink in. That's one of the great challenges for an evolutionist. Why is it, if they exist in right and left-handed states in nature, and they do, in approximately equal amounts, 
Why is it that in all living proteins, they're every one of them left-handed? In fact, if you try to stick a right-handed one in there, it doesn't work. That's one of the great mysteries that folks are trying to explain. To me, it looks like a plan is what it looks like. Somebody decided left-handed is what we're going to use, and that's what we use. And I think there's some reasons for that, which we're not going to take time to go into this evening, but here's a fact. And let me just take a little side trip here, because this isn't in this lecture tonight. But there was a famous experiment called the Yuri Miller experiment, in which they produced some of the simple amino acids just by uh, letting a machine run for a while. Happened in 1953, the Yuri Miller experiment. And one of the things that was said about that is, well, you see here we can produce these simple amino acids just by having the simplest of stuff and letting it run for a while, just like nature did. So nature can build living things is the argument. Well, in that experiment, when the experiment produced amino acids, it produced about the same percentage of left and right-handed amino acids every time, about 50% of each. But in living things, you only use left-handed ones. Now, does that make you left-handed folks feel good? You got a left-hander right here? Look at there. Well, I must tell you there's a balance to this. In the sugars that occur in living things, they're all right-handed. So all the sugars are right-handed. The amino acids are left-handed. Interesting, isn't it? All right. That's just another fact you should know. Now, here's a typical enzyme. Do you see all these uh, little balls here that are uh, stretched out in different orders? And then you see these little colored things in the middle? An enzyme is a substance that helps speed up a reaction in your body. Its primary purpose is to help a reaction go faster. And the neat thing about enzymes are they let the reaction go on, and then they're reproduced at the end, and you get to use them again. It's quite a neat system. Again, to me, it looks like a plan. There are about 2,000 enzymes in living cells. Each one with a specific responsibility. We'll be talking about some of those tonight. Each one has a specific job to speed up a reaction. And please note the active sites. You see these places right here? And by the way, enzymes don't look like white balls with little blue spots in them. That's just a picture. But it's to kind of give you an idea of how an enzyme works. What happens is the objects that are going to react are captured on these active sites. They interact, and then they let them go, and the enzyme comes back, and you can use it again. Here's another picture to show you how that works. Here's the enzyme. Here are the active sites. Here are the substrates that are going to react. You see how this one fits right in there? And this one fits right in there. And so they sit on the enzyme. They react. They form a new substance. It releases them. And boom, the reaction's done. That's how it works. Let me illustrate it another way. I am not much good at hunting ducks. But I think if somebody took the duck and tied him to a fence, even I could hit him. And that's what an enzyme does. It ties the molecules down till they react and then lets them go. So it speeds up the reaction. 
while you've been sitting here listening to me for the last few minutes, enzymes have been so busy, it's incredible. They've been catalyzing reactions of thousands per second while you've been sitting there. Did you have a big supper tonight like I did? Oh, my. I can feel them acting in here. That's taking a place at a phenomenal rate in your system. If it didn't, you'd be dead. And enzymes are protein. Can everybody say that? Enzymes are protein. Exactly. All made up of that 20 amino acid in combinations, right? You with me so far? Well, I wish, folks, we had another two or three weeks to talk about proteins. They deserve it. But we have to go on to the other major class of molecules called DNA. And the reason I go on is because DNA deserves a lot of attention. You see this structure over here on the side? It looks like two intertwining helixes. You see one and then the other wrapped around each other like this. And then you also see cross pieces that tie them together. That structure is what Crick and Watson are given credit for discovering. I must tell you, though, that's much too simple a story. Most anybody that discovers something in science just kind of picks over the top edge stuff everybody else had already found out. And that's what happened with Crick and Watson. They were two young bucks that just got lucky. Now, they were smart, no doubt about it. But they were building on what hundreds of others had done, and it was getting right up close to the thing, and they're the ones that pushed it over the top and were given credit for it all, practically. That's not the way things work. But this structure is amazing. It has a certain characteristic structure, a double helix with crossbars, and as such, it has a capacity to reproduce itself. Now, my job in the next few minutes is to help you understand that, at least in, in, in basic ideas. How can DNA reproduce itself. Remember, they're the dumb blondes of the molecular world. Well, here's the basic idea. First of all, you see this intertwining helix here. There's one and another kind of wrapped around each other, and they have cross pieces. Well, that's not going to do you any good. Those cross pieces have to be separated. You have to split the DNA apart. You have to unzip it. Now watch. You see this big old molecule sitting right here? It's called RNA polymerase. RNA polymerase is an enzyme, ladies and gentlemen. If a word in biology ends in A-S-E, it's an enzyme. RNA polymerase is a, an enzyme that helps DNA unzip. And what is an enzyme, ladies and gentlemen? A protein. Good. So if you want to make a copy of DNA, you have to have a protein. At least one. So far we've only talked about one. Well, RNA polymerase is that primary protein that unzips the DNA. And look, when you unzip it, you expose this side and this side. Many times, only one side is copied. 
sometimes both sides are covered. But look at the side that's exposed here. It's got a series of letters on there. Now, folks, there are no letters on the DNA. <laughs> Those letters stand for certain chemicals. Adenine, guanine, thymine, and cytosine. There's four bases. This is a four-letter system. All right, so you've got sequences of four letters. Let's look here. If you start right here, it's A, C, G, T, A, G, G, T, A, C, G, T, and so on. You see that? It's just a series of bases lined up along that strand of the DNA, sticking out. And if you were in my chemistry class, you would learn the precise structure of those four bases. And you would learn why it is they have the exact chemical properties that they have, and why it is that two of them always pair up and the other two always pair up. There are precise chemical reasons for that. A always joins with T, and G always joins with C when they hook up. You don't have to remember this. Just remember there's a system. And there's good chemical reasons for everything about it. All right. So we've got the DNA unzipped. We've got one side exposed. And on that side is a series of bases that correspond to four different types in a particular order. So what happens next? What happens next is in your cell is devised a process by which this side is copied. And as it's copied, notice that if there's a C over here, there's a G over here. If there's a G over here, there's a C over here. If there's a T over here, there's an A over here. So it's exactly the mirror image every time. The copy is the mirror image of what's on the DNA. The mirror image, which is formed as it goes right along here and copies each of those letters, is called RNA. In fact, it's called messenger RNA because it takes the message from the DNA and takes it somewhere else. We're answering the question, ladies and gentlemen, how is it that DNA allows reproduction? Here's how. It has tied up in it information. That information can be copied. That's called transcription. And it can be taken somewhere else and something can be done with it. In particular, build proteins. All right. Now, I've got to decide where I want to show you this other thing I've got. Let's see what's next here. I think we'll do this next. First, before we go there, notice again, ACG, TAG, GTA. Do you notice I'm reading those in three letters at a time? There's a reason for that. In the language of DNA, every word has three letters. And let me say that again. In the language of DNA, every word has three letters. Kids, would you like it if the only letter, words you had to spell were dog and cat? And and, that'd be kind of easy, wouldn't it? That'd really be nice. Well, this is a language that only has three-letter words. So let's do a little math now. If you have four letters you can use, and you can make three-letter words with four letters, 
And you can repeat letters. You can use any, all the letters in every position. How many words can you make? Four letters taken three at a time. You want to know how to do it? Exactly right. How'd you do it? Exactly right. You can put four different letters in the first place, four different letters in the second place, and four different letters in the third place. So if you want to figure how many, it's four times four times four, which is 64 words. There are exactly 64 words in this language. And here they are. You don't know how to read that yet. But let me show you how to read it. Here's the first base down this side. Here's the second base across the top. And here's the third base down this side. So you read three letters. Notice that there's a letter U here. Have I said anything about the letter U yet? No, I've said the letter T. You notice T's missing up there on those sidebars? There's no T here. In RNA, U replaces T. Okay? So it replaces T. I don't want to talk about that, but that's the way it is. So you in the first place, you in the second place, and you in the third place. You, you, you means phenylalanine right here. The three-letter word, you, you, you. I wonder how you'd pronounce that. Ooh. That's a funny word, isn't it, guys? What does that word mean? It means phenylalanine. Can you see that? First letter, second letter, third letter is this little block right here. It means phenylalanine. Let's try another one. What if you've had C, C, C? That's, let me see, that's this one right here. Choline. How about G, C, A? That's this one right here. That's alamine. You can read all the three-letter words off that table. And you can read what each one of them means. Now, are you alert enough tonight that you recognize these words here in the middle? Does anybody recognize those? Say it again. That's the 20 amino acids that I showed you a while ago that make up all what? Proteins. So listen to me carefully, class. What you have in front of you here is a, a language that has four letters with 64 three-letter words which code for the 20 amino acids found in every protein in every living thing. That is incredible. And it's found in every cell in your body. Every cell in every living thing. It's a language. And we've learned how to read it. We know exactly what it says. Ooh, ooh, ooh says phenylalanine. That's one of the 20 amino acids. And so on. Now, do you notice there are only 20 amino acids. And how many words do we have up here? 
64. So do you see some repeats? Well, yeah, here's proline three times right there. Here's histidine twice, glutamine twice, asparagine, lysine's a bunch of times, alanine. There's some repeats. Well, you say, why would you develop a language that has to have repeats? Well, think about the space program. Do we have backup systems in space programs? I mean, that doesn't say it wasn't designed. Looks to me like it was more designed than ever. All right, that's what we call the genetic code, ladies and gentlemen. We have discovered it. It's in every living cell. All 20 amino acids are here, but that's not all. Notice. A-U-G right here means methionine. That's one of the amino acids. It also means start reading. So if you're ever reading along a chain on the DNA and you come to A-U-G, that means start reading right there. And then you keep reading. Folks, DNA is so long, if you start reading here and you just keep reading, you'd be reading a long, long time. So in addition to start reading, have you noticed there's a stop up there also? Like that one? UAA means stop reading. So does UAG. So does uh, UAA. There's three stop readings. So there's a code that says start reading. You read three-letter words. And then there's a code that says stop reading. And in between, you have a bunch of three-letter words. And what do they mean? They mean amino acids. Are you getting the picture here? Alanine, lysine, threonine, asparagine, histidine, and so on, right down the line until you get a chain of amino acids. Guess what that is? That's a protein. So what you have coded in the DNA is the code to tell you how to build proteins. Folks, if there were nothing but that for me to tell you about, we ought to lay down our cards and say there's a God. Nobody in his right mind would say if we received the genetic code from outer space in a signal of radio bleaks, isn't it interesting what stars did? Thank you. Everybody would say something intelligent designed that. But somehow or another, if it's in a living thing, folks say, well, isn't it wonderful what nature did? But we haven't even begun. All we've talked about is the language. The language is useless unless you can do something with it. But I'll tell you, if you got such a genetic code from outer space, every newspaper on earth would be saying there's intelligence out there trying to tell us something. But not if it's right under your nose. Evolutionists have faith greater than all of Israel to say that such a system was designed by nature and the blind forces of physics. You show me any evidence that physics ever did such a thing. 
without intelligence acting upon it. <clears throat> this signal that we talked about last night, remember? The first 28 prime numbers in a row in the book contact. 1,126 bits containing the first 25 prime numbers in a row. Nobody would say that happened by chance. And we went through this whole process of determining whether something's designed or not. We don't have time for that tonight. But may I suggest to you it would be abundantly reasonable to draw the conclusion that this language system came from an intelligence source. This is much more complex than that signal of 25 prime numbers. Much more. However, there is much more to the description of life as we know it than just the genetic code. We've just gotten started, ladies and gentlemen. So, I think what I need to do right here is I need to have you stand up men and shake. Because some of you are getting this glazed look. And I have to have your attention. So please humor me. Stand up for just a minute and wiggle your body. Just shake and get the blood flowing. I know how it is to sit. Especially at my age. <laughs> the blood begins to sludge, doesn't it? But I will tell you the proteins are still working. Working hard. Okay, nobody left, so thank you very much. Let's get at it now. <clears throat> you see, folks, all we've talked about is the DNA that's down here in the nucleus that contains the information, the dumb blonde, if you like. There's much more to life than dumb blonde, pardon me. There's much more to living cells than just having information in them. You've got to do something with it. Notice. The information's all down here in the nucleus of the cell. Outside, look at all the stuff around here that's there. The rough endoplasmic reticulum, the Golgi bodies, the vesicles, the lysosomes, the microfilaments, etc., etc., etc. There's so much stuff in one cell. It's incredible. And it's all functioning. <clears throat> but here's the part I want to focus in on. Here's the DNA with all the information stored in it. Here's the transcription process as it's being copied and it becomes messenger RNA. Here's the process of cleaning it up. Here's where it migrates outside the nucleus. Here are the ribosomes that pick it up and read it. That's called translation. And down here's the protein being formed. So, you'll help me. We've got a little video we want to play for you. If you want to see it again, go to the website for Signature in the Cell. And on the front page of that website, you'll find this. Okay, now, what we're going to try to hold it before you start it. What we're going to try to do here is I'm going to be the narrator, and I'm going to have him pause it every now and then just to show you what's happening. What we're going to show you here is the process of building a protein in video. Understand it's a cartoon. But it's designed to show you how this works in live action. All right? Children, are you ready? Eyes glued on the screen. Okay, go. I hope. 
Isn't it supposed to load up? Okay, here we go. All right, there's the book by Stephen Meyer that we've been talking about. Where does the information come from is the question. Journey inside the cell. And here we go, down inside. Here's the DNA. You see the wrapped uh, strands together. Do you see the codes here on the side with ACG, ACG and T all wrapped around each other? And now here's what happens as that code unwraps. You see this monstrosity here? That's the RNA polymerase. You see how complicated that is? We haven't even talked about it. So, pause. <laughs> Sorry. I couldn't get it out fast enough. <laughs> you can't back up, can you? Can you back up just a little bit? Oh, that would be so nice. All right. Try it again, and I'm going to pause you sooner. Just All right. As it begins to unzip, watch what's happening. All right. Stop right there. This thing right here is the RNA polymerase. Can you see it's got a yellow tail to it and a little brown piece up here? There's a whole lot more to that than just RNA polymerase, folks. There's three or four proteins all working together there in a group. You've got community activity taking place. So it's much more complicated than I'm telling you, but it's all working in perfect harmony to unzip that DNA. All right? And what are enzymes? Proteins. There are at least four proteins right there. And before we proceed, you see it's kind of latching onto the DNA and unzipping it. Have you ever had trouble zipping a zipper? Don't they sometimes get stuck? Yeah, you've had trouble with that, haven't you? <laughs> you know what you do when you get a zipper stuck? You stretch it out tight, don't you? So it'll make it zip back up again. That's what this thing does, too. Did you know there are proteins that have no other function for the DNA than to keep it from getting stuck? They kind of keep it stretched out so that when you try to zip it back up, it doesn't get stuck. Or when you're unzipping it, it doesn't get stuck. There are proteins that do nothing but that. That's besides that RNA glob there that's not even shown on this thing. Okay, proceed now. You be ready to pause. Did you see it got wrapped there with something else? All right, here we go. It's unzipping. And look, as it does the pause, man, you see what's coming out the back here? That's the RNA. As this thing rides along the DNA, the RNA is being made, and it kind of, kind of snakes out the back as it's being formed. That's the copy, you remember. The one-stranded copy. All right, let's go a little further. Well, now here's a little better picture. You see what's happening here? Each of the little uh, parts of the RNA are coming up to make the copy, and they're forming a strand here. Copy, 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 copy. And it's going so fast you can hardly keep up with it. There it is. Stop. That's the RNA now that's been produced. How did the RNA know how long it should be? Anybody remember? There's a start message and a stop message, and that's what it copies. Then it separates, and there it is. 
and in between the start and stop message are the precise codes for the amino acids for that protein. With me? Let's proceed. Here goes the RNA. Now watch what it does. It's got to get outside the nucleus. How's it going to do that? The nucleus is a solid object. No, it isn't. Let's stop right there. <laughs> in the other picture, do you remember seeing a hole in that nucleus? Well, this is the hole from the inside. There's a hole in the, in the uh, cell nucleus wall. In fact, there are a lot of them. You can see them. Well, that hole, folks, could be very bad for the cell if it weren't a protected hole. Only certain things can get out of that hole, and nothing can get in. It's a one-way hole. You can go out. All right. Guess what guards the hole? Anybody have any idea? And only let certain things say it again. Proteins. There are certain very specific proteins that guard that hole, and guess what they let out? RNA, and that's all. Is that amazing? Okay, let's proceed. We're going to open the door for the RNA here, thanks to the proteins. You see how it opened up there? And there it goes, right through, outside the nuclear cell wall. And here it comes, outside. Now stop right there. Now, folks, there are about 68 things I haven't told you that have already happened. Or the RNA would have no place to go. See, you've got to have RNA for the ribosomes. You've got to have RNA for transfer. And you've got to have a bunch of proteins already floating around out there or you're not going to do anything with that RNA. All of that's already happened. They went out other holes by the way, which were also guarded by proteins. Yeah. Are you getting tired yet? We haven't even started. All right, so here comes the RNA floating outside now in the cytoplasm. Let's watch what happens to it. It gets picked up, you see. Can you see it's going right inside this thing here? Stop right there. This thing right here is called a ribosome. Guess where the ribosome is coded? Same place proteins are, in the DNA. And the ribosome has its own RNA and its own protein that have already been constructed, that have gone outside the nucleus, that have come together to form the ribosomes, which is now ready to receive the messenger RNA. And there it is. You notice how it closed in on it? On the other picture I showed you, it looked like two ducks hugging each other. That's not what it looks like. It looks more like this, kind of globby. But now you've got RNA stuck inside the ribosome. Now what happens? Let's see if the picture is going to show it. Here we go. You see this little three-letter hold it stop? You see right here are three letters, actually it's three chemicals. That codes for start and the cyanine. Here's the next three letters. Here's the next three letters. Can you see these little guys have three things on the top of them also? 
This is called transfer RNA. It picks up a particular amino acid out in the cytoplasm and hooks it up here according to the code on the messenger RNA. So look, the exact mirror image of the RNA is on the transfer RNA, which hooks up to it, which holds the amino acid. Do you see the two amino acids down here at the bottom? Now they're hooked together by a peptide bond. Okay, let's keep going. Watch the little guys coming in there. They look like seahorses, don't they? <laughs> They're not really. But can you see that we're building a protein at the bottom as they hook up in order? And look how fast. What's going to go? Oh, stop. Now, that got pretty fast there toward the end, didn't it? Do you know that didn't touch top side or bottom of how fast that is? It doesn't go like this. It goes, boom! It'll build a protein with 1,000 amino acids in a row in a microsecond. You listening to me? A protein with 1,000 amino acids it'll build in a microsecond. Henry Ford never touched it with his, what do you call them, assembly lines. Our assembly lines are pitiful compared to this. And it's happening every second while you sit there. All right, now notice here while he's paused it, the RNA is going inside the ribosome and being red. Let's go on now. See all the little guys coming in there and building that? Notice what's coming out the bottom here. What do you think that is? Stop. <laughs> what do you think that is that was just released? A protein. Exactly right. So the code goes in the top. All those little seahorses come in and connect up all the amino acids together, and the protein pops out the bottom. And all you've accomplished by doing that is building one protein But I'll tell you what else has to happen. Just because you have a string of amino acids doesn't mean you're finished. No, sir. That string of amino acids, to make the protein effective, has to wrap up in a particular geometry in three-dimensional space. And it has to have the exact right geometry. It doesn't work. So how do you get that? Well, the protein migrates to another object in the cell cytoplasm. Go ahead. And inside this object, the protein is manipulated, you can kind of watch it here, into the shape that it's supposed to have three-dimensionally so it can properly function. See how it's being organized there? And reshaped until it's released with its perfect three-dimensional structure to go do its work. out in the cytoplasm. I think that's basically it. What it's doing now is it's just showing you what all is going on out there, folks. Listen, all we've done is focus in on build one protein. 
That is just nothing compared to what's going on in here. All right, thank you very much. Can we go back to the other now? All right. You can see the little ducks here hugging each other. Those are the ribosomes. They read this like a tape recorder, and the protein comes out the bottom. You just saw it. It's absolutely phenomenal. Now, I have to make two other major points for you to, to try to get the major thrust of what I'm telling you just tonight. So I want you to stick with me here. The two other things I want to tell you is we've found out a whole lot more about cells in the last 15 years than we ever knew before that. And I have to give you a little taste of what we found out that's new. Besides all this stuff, this stuff we knew back in the early 80s. In the last 15 years, we've discovered 68 more things that make it even more incredible. Let me point out one right here. You see the copy being made up here of the DNA. Here's the RNA. You come down here, and we've learned that that messenger RNA needs to be matured first. In other words, you see these white pieces in here? They don't belong. Those are called introns. And so they are snipped out by what we call spliceosomes. And the RNA is matured. And then the mature RNA is what migrates outside the cell nucleus. Well, you know what evolutionists said when we discovered this? They said two things. You listen to me closely because I want to be fair to the evolutionists. They said, look, the DNA that is used to produce all this stuff that goes on in the cell only takes up about 5% of the entire DNA. What about the other 95%? The comment of evolutionists was the rest of that DNA is junk, which is good evidence that this evolved. It wasn't designed. Why would anybody build something that has 5% usefulness and 95% junk. That doesn't look like a plan to me. And when I was in debates on this subject on college campuses, every single time that's what I heard. Yes, but Professor Payne, what you haven't told the audience is that 95% of that DNA is junk. It's not even used. In addition to that, Professor Payne, what you didn't tell the audience is you've got to clean up the messenger RNA. Why would anybody want to make something that when you copy it, it's not a good copy? You've got to clean it up first. That looks like stupidity. That doesn't look like a plan. That looks like somebody didn't know what he's doing. So you see, no matter where you turn, the evolutionist has got some criticism that says that doesn't look like design to me. And I'll tell you what I've learned in 50 years of studying this subject. When an evolutionist starts down that path and accuses something God made of being junk, you just wait a few years till we find out more than we knew. And one of the fascinating things we found out is those introns that are snipped out have very fascinating purposes. Otherwise that they're being used for that we had no clue about and dared to call it junk. In addition to that, 
The rest of this DNA, which they said is 95% junk, we are just beginning, ladies and gentlemen, to start to try to understand what's going on. And in a few minutes, I'm going to tell you a few more things about what we've learned, and we're just keeping our toes in the water. But may I ask you to please hesitate to call things junk when the fact is your thinking is junk and your lack of knowledge is what's junk, not the actual substance itself. Did you know there was a time when people said you have 150 vestigial organs in your body, vestigial meaning useless, leftovers from your evolutionary past? You know how many people now say are vestigial? Depends on who you talk to, but two or three at the most. Like the lobes of your ear are supposed to be vestigial. Who needs an earlobe? Well, you girls need them. And maybe the end of your tailbone is supposed to be the leftovers when you used to have a tail. And the appendix. Folks, we've learned all kinds of things those things do for us. They're not junk. Same thing's been true of the DNA. It's been called junk. Shame on them. Why don't we just say, I'm ignorant yet about what's happening. So don't you worry about the fact that the RNA has to be cleaned up a little bit and those introns are in there. We found out there's some more use for those introns. trying to decide if I want to go down the road of talking about some more things. I can't do it all tonight. DNA is copied. The copies are called messenger RNA. Messenger RNA is formed at the coherent structure. It migrates outside the nucleus. Two other types of RNA are produced. I've already told you about all this. It's read in a ribosome like a tape in a cassette player. And there it is, reading. One guy leaves. The next guy comes. It hooks up the amino acids eventually you have a protein. Carol Haskins, did the code and the means of translating appear simultaneously in evolution? It seems almost incredible that such coincidences could have occurred. Given the extraordinary complexities of both sides and the requirement that they be coordinated accurately for survival by a pre-Darwinian or a skeptic of evolution after Darwin, and that's me, folks, this puzzle surely would have been interpreted as the most powerful sort of evidence for special creation. Now, that was written in 1971 by Carol Haskins. This is 2011, almost 2011, 2010. You say, that's sure an old quote. Well, I do need to get a newer quote, but can I tell you the message is even worse now? Because we know much more. How did this all get started, folks? You've got to have protein, and you've got to have nucleic acids, and they've got to be working together. DNA contains the code. It takes many proteins to transcribe and translate the code to build proteins. Right? You name it. These proteins are themselves coded in the DNA. Right? To produce these proteins from the code requires the proteins themselves. So which came first? I don't think you got it. Let's read this quote. What makes the origin of life in the genetic code a disturbing riddle is this. The genetic code is without any biological function unless it is translated. 
That is, unless it leads to the synthesis of the proteins whose structures laid down by the code. If you just have a code and you don't make proteins, you got nothing. But, as Monod points out, the machinery by which the cell translated the code consists of at least 50 macromolecular components. What do you think those are, those 50? Proteins, which are themselves coded in the DNA. Thus, the code cannot be translated except by using certain products of its translation. This constitutes a really baffling circle. Look, you've got to have proteins to translate the code, but the code has the code for those proteins that you need to translate the code. So how do you get this started? So you know what people have tried to do? They've tried to say, okay, there was first an RNA world. You just had RNA first. And somehow out of that evolved a protein. Well, folks, that does not work. It's got so many holes in it, it's pitiful. Well, somebody else said, oh, no, there was first a protein world. Proteins evolved, and then out of them came the DNA and the RNA. There are so many holes in that, it's pitiful. And there are proponents of both sides, and they argue with each other, and it gets rather vociferous. We have not solved that mystery in one iota. In fact, it's worse than it's ever been. How did this all get started? If that doesn't look like a plan to you, I think you need to get better glasses. It is the old chicken and the egg problem. In fact, it's worse. A living cell is a marvel of detailed and complex architecture. Seen through a microscope, there's an appearance of almost frenetic activity. That's a fun word. You know frenetic? Frenetic? Let me demonstrate it to you. That's what it looks like down inside a cell. On a deeper level, it's known that molecules are being synthesized at an enormous rate. Almost any enzyme catalyzes the synthesis of more than 100 other molecules per second. In 10 minutes, a sizable fraction of the total mass of the metabolizing bacterial cell has been synthesized. In 10 minutes, ladies and gentlemen, a bacteria completely reproduces itself. And that's billions and billions and billions of proteins and RNAs, etc., etc., etc. The information content of a simple cell has been estimated at around 10 to the 12th bits, comparable to about 100 million pages of the Encyclopedia Britannica, which doesn't have many pictures. That's the information in one cell. And may I say, that was written in 1974 by Carl Sagan, and we know a lot more now than we did then. So if 2,000 enzymes catalyze the reaction of at least 100 molecules per second, what's 2,000 times 100? 200,000 molecules every second. Now, I haven't counted up how many seconds you've been sitting here listening to me, but it's a lot. Multiply every one of them by 200,000, and that's how many proteins have been built in your body while you've been sitting there. Somebody says, isn't it interesting what the blind forces of physics did?
So real quickly, the recent discoveries about the cell's information system. You think we, we knew a lot about the concentration of information in DNA? From what we know now, it's 10,000 times more dense than we ever dreamed because there are multiple messages stored in the same sequence, not just one. There are spliceosomes and editosomes which mix, and mix it all together. So the same message could have 16 different messages in it that can be copied and sent outside. There's a code within a code. I'll, I'll illustrate it this way. During the Revolutionary War, you could send a letter in which in the letter you described what was happening on your farm. And you could send it to a soldier. And as long as he had the key to it, he could read that letter and learn how many soldiers were out there and what their formations were and when they were going to attack. Because in the code, there was another code. Ever heard of such a thing? They did it during the Revolutionary War. It takes kind of a brainy person to do it. But you can do it. But doesn't it take a brainy person to do it? Did you know, ladies and gentlemen, we've discovered that in the DNA, not only is there the standard code, which I've been telling you about tonight, but inside that code, there are multiple other codes that we're just beginning to read. So there are codes inside of codes. Now, I wonder how that evolves by the blind forces of physics. There are dual and overlapping messages which can be unzipped, spliced, and read. Secondly, there are files within folders to make retrieving, manipulating, and expressing information-rich data more efficient. You know, like our computer systems, which are designed similar to words, sentences, and paragraphs. You know, you can make words, and then with the words, you can make sentences. And with the sentences, you can make paragraphs. Do you know that's the exact same thing going on in the DNA? With genes, gene folders, super folders, and isocores, which are mega folders, which oversee the whole thing. Do you know we're beginning to learn, ladies and gentlemen, that the DNA provides for the cell a super system controlling it all? What do you call a computer system that controls the whole software? These are IT guys. A what? The server, <laughs> the server is the big computer that has everything in it. What do you call the software that controls it all? The operating system, right? Which one do you use, Steve? Windows. Most of us use Windows operating system, and most of us do not have a clue what we're doing. But did you know that Windows operating system is what provides the framework for everything else that happens in that computer? And did you know we're learning that's exactly what we've got in the DNA as well? It doesn't just copy and make proteins. There's a system that's growing and devising the system. Tell me DNA is junk. And the organism provides an informational context. So beyond all of that, there's an even larger system that goes beyond just the genes. Evidently, your body itself and the various parts of it control various things. That's been one of the newest discoveries. DNA alone does not wholly determine the morphological form in organisms. Cell types are made of, among other things, systems of specialized proteins, 
Organs are made of specialized arrangements of cell types, and body plans are specific arrangements of organs and tissues, bigger and bigger and bigger, and each one plays a role in controlling all of that. And I will tell you, we haven't started to learn the complexity of what's going on. If we received a message from space containing just the genetic code along with an explanation of how it's used to build proteins, everyone on Earth would conclude the source is intelligent. Everybody would. But with it in every living cell, and so common down here, we say, isn't it interesting what the blind forces of physics did? God help us to open our eyes. In the last 50 years, it's if God has said to us, Boom! Look what I've done. And what we have is greater resistance to it than ever in the history of mankind, I think. It's incredible. No, young people, you get in there and study chemistry to the depths of your being. And you learn the magnificence of the great God we serve. His testimony at the microscopic level is so loud and clear. If you miss it, it's because you want to. Not because the evidence isn't there. 